So today we're in Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. I'm going to tell you, these are 10 of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Because nowhere will you hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ so explicitly laid out as you will in these 10 verses. Okay, so we're going to dig in here. Uh, and, and open it up. And uh, if you've got your, your Bibles, you can open up and follow along with me. We're going to go through this chunk by chunk, but I'm going to read the 10 verses for you together. Um, here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, right, it grabs you right off the bat. Like, you were dead. Like, there's something bad about you. Like, yay, come to church, feel encouraged, you're bad. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out our desires of our body and in the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we are going to really dig in to Ephesians 2 today and break apart what Paul has to say in this very explicit treatment of the gospel. But before we start, I want to ask you this. How does your faith matter to you? I mean, like a serious question. How does it matter to you? Does it matter to you? Yes, you you believed in in this guy called Jesus. You, You heard an Easter message at some point in time. You believed it. Jesus, God in flesh lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. Um, He was raised from the dead. And anyone that believes in him will not perish, but will inherit eternal life. Awesome. It's good news. But if, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, right, then this is something you're considering. What does that mean? Right? But if you are here today and you have decided that you are a follower of Jesus, that, that I'm in, I believe in Jesus, what is your faith for? See, a lot of us, we assume that our faith is there to save us, right? Our our faith saves us from hell. So when I believe in Jesus, I am saved from hell, and then I just go on with the rest of my life. The thing is, that's that's a really incomplete way to look at it. And can I be really honest with you? If that's your view of faith, it's boring It's exhausting. And at some point in time, you might find yourself flirting with the idea of walking away from it. Because a faith that doesn't impact your life feels worthless. A faith that doesn't have a direct impact on your life feels fruitless, it feels exhausting. And so, so many of us, not all of us, but many of us find ourselves in this weird space, right? Where we know that we're saved. We really believe it. It just doesn't actually mean anything for the way I live my life. Really, for a lot of us, the way I lived my life before I got saved and the way I live my life after I got saved aren't really all that different. Except now, except now, I get to think about going to heaven when I die. So, I mean, I got that going for me. The problem is, that's not real faith. 
your faith is supposed to be for more than that. And in fact, your, your faith is supposed to be something that is transformative in your life. Yes, it secures for you an eternity in heaven. It saves you from hell. But it also does something in you now. And here's what I'm going to say to you as we get into this. And this is exactly what Paul's going to lay out for us. If it's not doing something in you now, then you are misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't understand the gospel if it's not changing your life. Not just changing the trajectory of your life, but changing your life. Because the gospel is about more. As Paul says, it's about exceedingly, abundantly more. In fact, here, here's what Pastor Lowell read to us last week. Oh, see, that's, I've been gone so long I forgot to turn on my clicker. Every time. Here's what Pastor Lowell read to us last week in chapter 1, right? Um, this, is, this is God doing these things so that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, right? We, we have this whole salvation, the gospel. It was more than just saving us from hell so that we can know the hope to which we've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe according to the working of his great might. It's like, okay, that, that all sounds fine and good, but what is that immeasurable greatness, How do we claim it? How do we live it out? What is the more, the exceedingly abundantly more that we've been offered? Because listen to me, it's not this. If you're like me, there may be some, I may be talking to some of you here like, man, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I am daily being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is in me and I am not looking back and it is, it is full steam ahead. And if that's you, man, good on you. And write a book, man, because we need to read it. But if you're like most Christians, especially most Christians in this culture, then what you've got is you've got faith that Jesus is real. And then I've got the rest of my life that I'm just trying to muddle through. And listen, that's not enough. That's not the immeasurable greatness that God has called us for. That's, that's, that's a, a faith that's exhausting and boring and silly. But God has called us to more, exceedingly, abundantly more. The gospel is not a one-time event. It's not something that you get to avoid hell, and then you're on your own to figure out the rest of your life. That's what we assume. We assume that the gospel is this thing I respond to. I get to go to heaven instead of hell. And then I just have to work out for myself how to live a a good moral life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is transformative. The gospel takes who you were and changes you into something new. Right? And that's exactly what Paul's laying out in this letter. And that's exactly what he deals with in these 10 verses. But I just want to challenge you here before we even get started. If you viewed the gospel as something that gets you out of hell into heaven, but then does nothing else for you, if that's the faith that you have, well, guys, I'm just not sure that's real faith. I'm just not sure that's real. I have a feeling you may be disappointed when that day gets here. Let's break this apart a little bit. Let's get into it. So here's how he starts. He starts with this idea that you were dead in the trespasses and sins, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Hey, you, you were dead. Death is a tyrant. The way that Paul works this out, it's quite clear. You know this. We've talked about this a, a hundred times if you've been here for, for more than a month, right? right? That without Jesus, you are dead, With Jesus, you are alive. That's just the way it works. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. When you didn't have Jesus, you were dead. And it wasn't just a future death, it was a current death. Right? The fact that death is out there, right? We're all going to die. Death exists. Death is out there. And not only that, but the Bible tells us that When we die, we will face judgment. And after that, because my life won't be what it was supposed to be, there will be an eternal death, an eternal judgment that will send me to hell. And that reality, 
The fact that death is coming physically and that death is coming spiritually, that reality doesn't just stay in the future. It permeates everything. That's not a surprise, right? Like, like listen to me. I'm not shocking you to tell you that this world doesn't work, am I? I mean, just watch the news. This world doesn't work. And that's not because, it's not because we haven't figured it out yet. Sometimes, and, and it, I get it, I get it. But sometimes we as Christians, we assume, oh, we can figure this out. Like, we can figure this out. We can figure out the system that's going to work, that's going to make people happy and healthy, right? That's going to give people their best life. We can do this. Listen to me. With all due respect, no, we can't. Because this place is broken. In fact, the, the, the word tells us, God tells us, Jesus tells us that this place is not just broken. Listen to me. Oh, this, is, this, one, this one sucks. And, and people hate it when I say this, but it's from the Bible. It's broken beyond repair. We can't fix this world. It's broken beyond repair. Now, listen. Can we push back against darkness? Yes. Can we save people from hell while we're here? Can we be on mission? Yes. Can we work hard as the church to preserve it the best that we can until God is ready to come back, Jesus comes back, and makes the whole thing new? Absolutely. Those are all things that we should be doing as the church. But this world is not going to get fixed. At the end, what God is going to do, right, what the book of Revelation tells us is that Jesus will wipe this world away and will bring a brand new one in its place. Because this thing is broken. Sin broke it. And we're part of that. This is what Paul's saying. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Now, this is another thing people hate. When, you, when I say you're dead, that means, listen, 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 listen. There was nothing redeeming about you. You're like, but Matt, I'm a good person. Even before I became a Christian, or if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're like, I, I'm, not, I'm not a bad person just because I'm not a Christian. No, that's not what I'm saying. Of course you're not a bad person just because you're not a Christian. I know plenty of people that aren't Christians that are good people. My, my air quote's good. They're good people. They mean well. They have good, air quotes, hearts. Right? They do charity work. They love their neighbors. They want to do good for people. I know plenty of people that aren't Christians that that have these, these hearts that bleed for a broken world and they want to fix it. Right? And so it feels mean and it feels bad when we say that without Jesus, we're bad people. Like, well, how can that be? Right? If some people can be good, Right? If they can have good desires towards the world, how can they be bad without Jesus? And, and here's the problem, right? Even our good desires are wrong. They're broken. See, this is part of living in a broken world. Think of it as spheres of influence. This is what Paul goes on to say. He says, listen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked because you were following the course of this world. And when you follow the course of this world, here's what that means. It means you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. There's a lot of words there. Here's what it means. Here's what this simply means. That this world that we are a part of is influenced by this power. That power is Satan. It's evil. That power is evil. It's the devil. The devil is influencing this world. So if you are working and going along, even if you're going along with the best of intentions, but you're going along with this world, then you're going the wrong direction. And death is your future. And death is your present. Because you're influenced by this world. Now here's the deal. I want to be real careful here because here's what I know to be true about the devil. The devil is real. The devil is powerful. 
The devil is, is the, the Bible tells us that he is a formidable foe, roaring, uh, roaming around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's the other thing I know about the devil, is that sometimes we Christians make a whole lot more of the devil than we ought to. I know a lot of Christians that talk a whole lot more about the devil than the Bible does. Here's the reality. We are responsible. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare as we get into the book of Ephesians, and spiritual warfare is a must, and we are going to deal with it. We are going to learn through Paul's writing here how to battle spiritually with the enemies uh, and the spirits and the principalities and all of those things that come against us as believers, and we're going to deal with that. But the reality is this. We, we're the one that make these choices. We're the ones that choose to walk in this way. We're the ones that are following the prince of power in the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you might say, Matt, no, 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 no. Just because we don't follow Jesus doesn't mean we're following the devil. So listen, man, there's only two paths. There's only two paths. You're either walking in righteousness, trying to follow Jesus, or you're walking the other path, whether you know it or not. This is Paul's point here. He's like, look, you were these people, even if you were good, even if you did nice things for people, even if you helped your neighbors, even if you gave to charity, even if you were a guy that was going to accidentally bump into somebody's car and you were going to leave a note, not drive away, even if you're that person, you're still walking down this road because that's where the road leads. And if you're going to walk somewhere else, you have to make the purposeful, conscious decision to step off of that road. And to turn around and to walk on this road instead. You were all dead. Following the enemy. Right? And here's what it looks like, right? We take our good passions. And the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, right? We're, we're, we're trying to meet our own needs. But here's the thing, right? You know it deep down in your heart. Even as Christians, you know that this is something you struggle with. But before you became a Christian, before you gave your life to Jesus, what's the one thing that was the truest about you? You were selfish. I mean, it's still one of the things that's truest about me. I've been, I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long, long time in my life. And one of the things that is truest about me is still that I struggle with selfishness. Before I came to Jesus... I mean, that was my whole gig. Self-centered. Everything was about me. Even the things that weren't about me were about me. One of the things that my family will say often to me is, hey, Matt, it's not about you. I'm like, but it kind of feels like it should be. Just saying. I feel like a lot of things ought to be about me. They disagree. We're all Selfish. And so what we do is we take these good human desires that God has given us, these good passions that God has given us, and we start, we start to, we start to jack them up. We make them different. We start to run after what we want. We stop following what we're supposed to follow. We just get all jacked up here. Carry out the desires of the body, of the mind. And in doing that, here's the rub. We become, by our very nature, because we're on a trajectory of death and it's starting to filter down to who we are now, we are children of the wrath of God, like everybody else. Sometimes as as Christians, here's what we like to do. We like to protect God from wrath. We don't like to act like God is wrathful. We don't like to act like God carries wrath wrath. But listen to me. You cannot rightly understand the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. And God is full of wrath. God is full of wrath towards sin and evil and wrong. God is full of wrath. We just have to understand that. We have to accept that. But listen to what I'm going to say now. God is not mad at humans. God isn't mad at people. In fact, God loves people. God loves people so much that his whole 
purpose in the cross, the whole purpose of the activity of all of the story of Scripture, the whole purpose of all of it is to create a way so that we do not have to experience God's wrath towards sin and evil and wrong. But God is full of wrath, and sin and evil and wrong will be dealt with. This world will be dealt with. The enemy will be dealt with. We are all on a trajectory for death. And God's wrath has short-term effects and it has long-term effects. Listen to me. The long-term wrath is when evil is finally defeated, sin is finally defeated, and death is finally defeated and is thrown into the lake of fire. We read about that in Revelations. Sin, death, pain, all of them are defeated and destroyed once and for all. And the problem is this. It's like a game of hot potato. Anybody at the end that's caught holding their sin, right, that's caught holding their wrong and their evil, when that gets thrown into the lake of fire, they go with it. Because they're the ones that own it. That's where it happens. Anyone who has let it go, well then, they're given freedom in Christ. This is the rub. And so that's the long-term wrath of God is that eventually we will die. There will be judgment. Sin will be judged. But what happens with the wrath of God is there are short-term things. And those short-term things are for our benefit. They're out of God's love that he deals in discipline with us. You ever wonder why your life doesn't work out the way you want it to? Why everything doesn't just go right? I mean, one, we live in a broken world. But two, listen, because God isn't going to let you just keep going your own way. That wouldn't be loving. God's whole intention is to turn you. That, that discipline, that's like an alarm that sounds. Every time the discipline comes, it's an alarm that sounds. And you have the opportunity to respond to it and to turn and go the other way, to fix it, to look towards Jesus. If you don't and you keep going towards death, then God will keep sounding the alarm. It wouldn't be loving to do otherwise. Think about it as parents. Is it loving just to let your kids go when you know the path leads to destruction? Or as a parent, do you sit them down? Do you offer discipline? Do you tell them the truth? Do you keep trying to move them? Of course you do. Right? If you didn't care, you wouldn't try. God cares. He loves you like crazy. Right? His, his, his whole thing is love trying to help you avoid his wrath. So when you get small doses of discipline, that is God loving you. Sometimes we look at that as proof that God's mad at us. Like if God really was good and God was really real and God was really in my life, then he would just make it all go smooth and simple and easy. No. Right? That's not loving. It's easy, but it's not loving. Here's the deal, man. The story of the Bible is actually God himself taking every action step to keep his wrath from destroying you. After the fall, the way he intervenes with Adam and Eve, right? He could have just destroyed them in his wrath. But no, that's not what his love would do. Instituting a sacrificial system so people had a way to to be cleansed from their sin temporarily and be made right with God. Right? That was a way that God was working in them to appease his wrath. Sending the prophets to try to turn them from their sin. Being with them in the discipline of the exile all the way through uh, the, the glory of their return. And we see it most of all on the cross. This is God, right, trying to keep his wrath from destroying humanity. He pours his wrath out on Jesus so that we will be all right. Listen, that's the first three verses, and it's not a great start when, when Paul writes this. He's like, look, here's the deal. You were dead because you're evil. Even if you're good, you're still not good. 
right? You're evil. You're wrong. Why are you wrong? Because you're following a path that follows the devil. You're not following the path that follows God. And because of that, you are subject to the wrath of God, and it is not going to go well. But then Paul tells us the good news, right? That, that, that God doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, but God intervenes, right? Being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Like this is this, this great thing that Paul says. He's like, here's what happened. God knew all of this, right? Yes, you were dead. You were the walking dead. You were walking towards death. Every day you were getting a step closer to physical death and eternal damnation, right? And you were following the devil and God's wrath was going to be poured on you. But God is so rich in mercy and so full of love that he did this thing through Jesus to make it better for you, to save you. By grace, you've been saved. Mercy, you know what mercy is? Mercy is just this fancy idea that God withholds what we are due. Used to, <laughs> we used to have some friends at Bethany way back when. I was teaching a parenting Sunday school class, and I remember their example. They had two little kids at the time. Um, and and, and uh, sometimes to demonstrate this thing of grace uh, and mercy, they would have kids that had misbehaved and were ready to be spanked. Right? But they, they didn't use their hand when they spanked. They used this thing called the wisdom whacker. I don't know. It's a thing. It was just like a little, you know, like fly swatter. I don't, I don't know. But it was, they'd be like, all right, look. I mean, this is like, it's hardcore parenting. They'd be like, look at me. Go get the wisdom whacker. Kids would be like, all right. Go get it. Bring it back. And they'd get it. And they'd be like, you deserve this. You know that, right? Yes then I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to withhold what you deserve. And that is an act of mercy. You smacked your sister. You deserve this punishment that we've all agreed upon, but I'm going to show you mercy in this instance. And then it got to the point where the kids would be um, in trouble and they'd go get the wisdom whacker and they'd come back crying, show us grace and mercy, show us grace and mercy. It was a thing. We all laughed. It was good. But here's the idea. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. We deserve hell. And this is a thing, right? This is, where, this is where I start to lose people. This is where I start to lose people that have nominal faith and people that don't even claim to, to, to know or love Jesus. This is where I lose them. When we talk about the fact that we deserve hell. Because when I say somebody deserves hell, it feels mean-spirited, it feels arbitrary, and, and it feels like it's an extra harsh punishment. And I get that. But the reality is, we all deserve hell. Right? Whether we think it's fair or not is not the issue. The reality is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God's standard, because he's God, is perfection. And that's not God being mean. You've all had the teacher who had ridiculously high standards, right? And you had the 89.9%. You're like, dude, round it to an A. And they're like, no, you missed the cut. You're at 89.9. If you would have been at 90, I'd have given you an A, but you're at 89.9, so you will not get an A. That's the standard. You missed it. We think that's how God's operating. That's not how God operates. Some of you are teachers. Don't, don't be that person. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, I don't tell you how to do your job. Okay, fine. You do you, Joe. Like, however you do it. But here's the thing. That's not how God operates. God doesn't have a standard. And he's like, oh, I hope you make it. No. God is holy. And some of you got to understand this. God is perfect. God can not. It's not that he won't. It's not that he won't. God cannot accept anything less than perfect into his presence. If he did that, he would stop being God. He literally can not do it. 
He's not being hard to get along with. He can't. Some of you are like, Matt, that's not fair. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for this system. It is what it is, man. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the way that it works. You can, you can take the rest of that up with God when you get there. You can pour your heart out in lament the way that David does in the Psalms time and time again. None of that changes the fact that this is the reality. This is the way that it works. God is perfect. And therefore, anything not perfect is subject to his wrath. But being rich in mercy, he's going to take away what we are due. We are due wrath, but he's going to take it away. And instead, he's going to give us something else. That's what grace is, right? If wrath or if mercy takes away what we're due, grace gives us something we don't deserve. So God takes away our wrath and he gives us freedom and life. And this is the rub. This is where we get confused about the gospel. So what does that life do for us? See, if you're not a Christian, then that's where you need to stop and wrestle, is the idea that God, through Jesus, has given us something we don't deserve and has taken away what we do deserve. And you've got to wrestle with what that means for you. You've got to wrestle with whether or not you're going to accept that truth. If you're going to walk along thinking, no, I'm fine. I can just do what I want. I'm a good person and God will will reward me for that. You believe that, I'm telling you the Bible says no. You just have to wrestle with, with what's right. You are the Bible. Right? But... But for those of us that have said, yes, we know that wrath is ours, and and we know that God is going to give us in grace something we don't deserve, then we've got to wrestle with what does that mean? Because it's not just about getting you out of hell. That is a boring, terrible, awful Christian life where you're like, yes, I'm made new, and now I've got to spend the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it is, muddling through life. And God's not going to save you so that you can muddle through life. Who do we think he is? He's so rich in love and grace and mercy that he's going to save us. And he's going to be like, hey, you do you. I'll check back in 70 years. No. He saves us to raise us up and seat him. Seat us with him in the heavenly paces in Christ Jesus. And if you are going to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right, there is going to be movement. When you are saved, you are legally, the word is justified. We talked about this in Corinthians. You are legally justified. You are legally free of guilt. Your guilt was taken away from you when you believed and followed Jesus and it was put on Jesus. You are legally justified. Practically, you're a tool. I am legally justified. Practically, I'm a tool. I have a lot of work to do to move from my position in Christ, which is legally justified and holy and righteous. I've got a lot of work to do to move from my position to actually living that way in real life. And this is where most of us allow the gospel to fall short, right? Because we think the gospel is just for saving us. You think the gospel just saves you. But I want you to know what Paul's saying when he's saying, look, there is exceedingly, abundantly more, is that the gospel doesn't just save you. The gospel actually, if you allow it to, it transforms you. The problem is that many of you came to know Jesus and you expected it to happen overnight. You're like, I decided to follow Jesus. Why do I still want to look at pornography? Like, I decided to follow Jesus. Why do I still lust? Why do I still gossip? Why do I still talk about people? Why do I still get angry? Why do I still cut people down? Like, I came to know Jesus. I am justified. Why does that stuff still happen? And you're like, well, it should have gone away because I was made new. The problem is, those roots are deep. Those roots run deep. And they are hard to kill. And there is no silver bullet to kill those roots. There's just 
the hard, transformative work of the gospel. Some of you, here's what you do, and this is what, unfortunately, what what a lot of religion teaches us to do. Take a weed whacker and just cut those things down. The problem is, you know what happens when you cut and you just break weeds off at the top. The roots are still there. They just regrow. And so some of you, here's what you've decided the Christian life is, and this is why it's exhausting. This is why it doesn't work itself out in your life, and this is why you might be ready to walk away from it or at least to put it in the rearview mirror. Because what you think the Christian life is, is, okay, I've got heaven in the future, and I just got to work hard to keep these roots from sprouting up, and when they do, I got to cut them down with a weed whacker, and then I got to work hard to keep them from coming up, but guess what? They're going to, so I cut them down with the weed whacker again. That's exhausting, and it's frustrating, and it's boring, and we don't want to do it. Instead, what we have to do is allow the gospel to do its work, And we have to start to pull these roots out. And that is tough. And here's where that happens. It happens in a body. It happens when we're honest with each other. It happens when we tell each other the truth. It happens when we um, bear burdens for one another. It happens when we're tender-hearted towards one another. It happens when we do this life together. Because if you're doing it by yourself, then you're going to be embarrassed when that weed sprouts up and you're going to quickly knock it down the best you can. And then you're going to gird up your loins and you're going to try real hard and you're going to, you're going to work hard to try to not let it happen again. But guess what? It's going to happen again. Of course it's going to happen again. And then you're going to by yourself, you're going to try to knock it down. But instead what you need is you need some help to pull that thing out. But the gospel is not just there to save you. The gospel is there to transform you. And the body is here to help you with that. It's more. It's more than just saving you from hell. It's more than just trying to live a life that that everybody thinks is good enough and trying to, to get rid of your bad habits long enough to fool people. It's more than that, exceedingly, abundantly more. And why? Why is God so worried about your transformation, right? Because you are his trophy, right? God is so worried about your transformation because you are his trophy. You're his honor badge. Like I was never a Boy Scout, but like they have badges, right? That's a thing. Pins, something. Okay, whatever. Awana, you're the jewel in the crown. Like pick your childhood thing. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, right? Like, there is nothing going to scream about God's grace, mercy, and glory louder than my transformed life. You don't even know. Like, for all of eternity, people are going to look at me, right? And they're going to say, here is what Matt was. It was crap. Here is what God made him. How glorious and great is the mercy and grace of God to take that and make it that. I will be his trophy. (laughs) Deal with it. And here's where Paul gets then personal, and this is what we'll deal with as we start to wrap up. It's because of this grace that you've been saved now. Paul says, don't get stupid. This is what God's doing for you. You were dead. You were destined for the wrath of God because you were walking down a road that was evil. Whether you knew it or not, whether you were a good person or not, you were walking down a road that was evil. You were destined for hell and death. But God, because he is so rich in love and mercy and grace, he intervened and he snatched you from that and he pulled you back. And because he loves you like crazy, he will not allow you just to languish, but he wants the gospel to transform you. And then Paul says this, and by the way, that had nothing to do with you, right? He did that through his grace, through your faith. Now, here's the thing about grace and faith. They get really wonky if we're not real careful. And we get real religious to try to jack it up. But God's grace is what saves 
through faith. We've used this example before, and so I, I bought this to help you. Plus, it's been eight weeks, and I thought I might be getting peckish right about now. So, I bought a shake. Because I've used this example before, and I'm like, you know what would be better than talking about a shake? Enjoying one. This is a chocolate chill freel. For real, y'all. Freel. Anyway, thank you, Quickstar. Faith. The shake, the goodness, the chocolatey whatever. It's in there. It's, it's faith. No, I'm sorry. It's grace. It's mine. God is offering it to me. I'm like, that's awesome. How do I get it? Like, I don't know how to get it. Right? How do we get God's grace for us? God's grace does all of the work. It's what saves us. How do I get it? I'll go get baptized. Nope, still in there. All right? Well, I'll, I'll take communion. No. I'll, I'll do my, my confirmation. I'll say the right things at confirmation. That must get me saved. That must get me God's grace. No, that doesn't do it either. There's only one thing that gets me saved. God's grace that I draw onto myself through faith. It's like this straw. Best example ever. There's the grace. Here's my faith. I'm drawing it. It's pretty good. I'm drawing it onto myself. I can't have it all. I've got to save it for next service. That's going to be gross by next service. <laughs> Maybe I'll pretend. Uh, but here's the thing, right? I'm drawing that onto myself. This is where the church historically has really messed up. On both ways. We used to think, right... Uh, the invitation is simple. God's grace is here. By faith, you draw it to yourself. What is faith? Faith is belief. But the word belief gets really confusing. The Greek word for believe, believe, be baptized, have faith. The Greek word, like God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him will not perish. The Greek word for believe is not a word of intellectual agreement. It's not a word of intellectual agreement, right? But it's a word of agreement that causes action. Here's, the, here's, here's how this works, right? I would say to you, Justin Fields is going to have his first career start today for the Bears. That guy is going to have a great career and save the Bears. And you, because you're wise, will say, I agree with you. And then that has nothing to do with the rest of the way we live our lives. Right? It's an intellectual exercise. If I say to, to you, Two plus two equals four. You would say, do you agree? Yes, Vanessa agrees. Two plus two equals four. And you might think that doesn't do anything, right? Okay, it's the same thing. It's no different than Justin Fields being a great quarterback. We agree. Two plus two equals four. We agree. Except here's the thing. Everything numbers related in our world is based on this truth that two plus two equals four. When you get a paycheck, when you pay taxes, when you go to the store, when you balance your checkbook, when you do everything, the simple reality, the truth of these numbers and how they work that we all have agreed upon, that impacts everything. So when we say that you have to believe, right, to be saved, when he says grace comes by believing through faith, what it means is that it's not just an intellectual agreement, but it's an agreement that actually permeates everything about you. See, here's where we get this wrong. We have what we call easy believism a lot of times. Easy believism where we say, listen, all you have to do to be saved is believe in Jesus and then you're good. You're like, okay, I believe in Jesus. And then you just go keep doing whatever you want to do. Listen to me. That's not faith. That's not faith the way the Bible teaches faith. I am afraid for many of us 
This is one of the things that keeps me up at nights. I don't sleep well. I've told you that before. I don't sleep well. And so sometimes there's, there's random reasons I don't sleep well. But a lot of times this is one of them. One of the things that keeps me up at nights is that we have a church full of people with faith or a community full of people or a nation full of people that have faith and belief. But it's groundless. It's not real. They have an intellectual believism and they don't have real grounded faith. But when you have real faith in God, when you have real faith in God, it changes everything. It changes everything. Get this. You are not saved by what you do, but your saving faith will cause you to do different. It will cause you to want to pull those roots out at the source and to live a transformed life. If you have no desire to live a transformed life, then it's fair. I mean, I'm not God. I'm not going to tell you where your name is written. But if you have no desire to live a transformed life, like no desire, it's fair for you to wonder if you believe or if you believe. Because there's a difference. We are saved by grace through faith. And that's not of our own doing. You didn't earn that. You weren't good enough. Remember, you were walking on the path to death. So you can't boast about it. You can't be like, I'm so good. God needed me. You were saved by grace through faith. And that's all what God did. Right? God wasn't sitting around angsty waiting for you like, man, I hope they fix it. I hope they fix it. Oh, man, they so need to apologize right? No. God wasn't waiting for you to be good enough so he could save you. He knew you wouldn't be. So what did he do? He sent Jesus to do it for you. He sent Jesus through mercy and grace to take away what you deserve, to offer you something you didn't need so that you could fix this on your own. And we, as a result, Christian, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what does that mean that we're his workmanship? Bear with me for just a second. Uh, Let's go backwards. Here's something that Pastor David read in week one. God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, right, in the heavenly place, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, Um, as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. Whatever you believe about predestination, did God really choose me to be a Christian before I was even born? Right? What does it mean that he chose me before the foundation of the world? Right? We could have a lot of debate and, and, and a lot of conversation back and forth about this. But here's the thing. Whatever you believe about that, it becomes really clear that God did something Right? That somehow through choosing and predestination, those aren't confusing words, somehow God did something to initiate this salvation, whether it was the drawing and the calling of the Holy Spirit that convicted me of sin so that I could respond, whether it was choosing me way, way, way back when. I don't know how any of that plays out. I'll ask him when I get there. But here's the reality. The reality is God has obviously done something to make me his pride and joy. My dad used to carry this picture in his wallet. And he would ask, my brother and I, right? He, he would ask people, and, and I remember he did it once in my presence, I'm sure for my benefit, and he asked his coworker, hey, his name was Mark. Mark, you want to see a picture of my pride and joy? And I was like, he's got a picture of me and my brother in his wallet. He literally took out this picture. But this is what God does. He makes us his pride and joy. He creates us, chose us, destined us, whatever that means, called us through the Holy Spirit. However that works, he brought us to himself. We are his workmanship so that we could be made new. We are his pride and joy. And listen to me. He did it for a reason. Look at this last little part. So that we would do the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. God made you new, not so that you could just struggle and muddle through this life trying to knock down your sins, but God made you new so that you could be transformed 
by the gospel that does its work even after you're saved. It keeps working when you let it so that you could do the work that he gave you. What's the work that he gave you? Well, here's what Jesus said in John. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done. So if you believe in Jesus, right, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, you'll do the same works I do. And even greater works for that matter, right? Because I'm going to be with the Father, right? Here's what he says. He says, you'll do what I've done. You'll do even more than I did, right? And so then we read in Ephesians that that we're going to, we're made new in Christ to do the good works he planned for us. What are the good works? They're what Jesus did and more of what Jesus did. Here's how that practically is going to play itself out. It's the task of reconciliation. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself and no longer counting people's sins against him. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Here's the work. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus, what did he tell us? He was here to set the captive free. To give the blind back their sight. The year of Jubilee to free people from slavery. The slavery of sin. What does that look like for us? Well, we speak for Jesus when we tell people, come back to God. So let me ask you as we close. Are you doing it? Are you using your faith in a way that does something... Or are you just waiting for heaven trying to knock down sin as it pops up? Bored and exhausted and frustrated. That is not the way to live the Christian life. But instead, you've been saved to be transformed to do the work that God gave you to do. That work is saving people from hell. Like, Matt, I don't know how to save people from hell. You actually do. It's pretty simple. You pray for them. You invest and you invite. I had one of those cards. We, we've got them somewhere. You know, those cards we've got out there at the Welcome Center, right? Pray, invest, invite. Are you praying for people to know Jesus? Like legitimately, if I, if I were to stop you and corner you and say, who are you praying for? Would you have to stutter and stammer as you try to think of a name? Or would you know it? Who are you investing in? Like, who have you invited out for coffee? Who have you asked their family to come over for dinner? Who have you intentionally decided to spend some time with to invest in them? Would that be an easy thing for you to answer or would it be problematic? And who have you invited to church, to a spiritual conversation, to engage somehow in faith? If you're not doing these things, then it's no wonder that your faith is exhausting and boring to you. Because it wasn't ever about just getting by. It was about being transformed and doing the work. We'll talk more. Listen, that was a lot. That went longer than I intended, but it has been eight weeks. We'll do better next time. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you're good and gracious and kind, and we love you. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the mercy and for taking away what we are due. And thank you for the grace that gives us what we don't deserve. God, thank you for saving us so that we can be transformed and we can be doing the works that you've prepared for us, the works of Jesus. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen.